here today to present to you Michael Dweiser. Michael is a faculty teacher in Manitoba with extensive uh, experience in rural um, ed. So I think this is a, a good uh, a good area that, uh, that we have in Baltimore. He has written a book. By the way, the book's for sale. What's wrong with our schools and how to fix them? And he has done educational forums all over the country. He uh, he has uh, done many uh, educational issues. He uh, is a uh, uh, has asked to contribute to. Uh, the top newspapers in the country, including the Halifax Herald, that's the top. Uh, the Calgary Herald, the uh, Star Phoenix, and National Post, and, and many others. Uh, he also has been asked to participate in uh, many uh, uh, shows, any uh, talk shows, and uh, they go from coast to coast. The Roy Green Show, I think, originates in Montreal. The uh, Adler Show in Manitoba. And by the way, he just got back from doing a, a show here, the Gorman Show in Saskatoon. We think that this is a, the Royal Congress is a great avenue to, uh, to have different perspectives on education. And at this time, and by the way, if you have any questions, go get Michael. Uh, and without further ado, it's my pleasure to present Michael Schweitzer. Well, thank you very much, Freeman, for uh, that kind introduction. I uh, appreciate it very much, and I'm uh, very pleased to be here at the uh, National Congress in Rural Education. Uh, this is my first time at this, uh, at this event, and I'm certainly enjoying my time here so far. Uh, if you're wondering how is it uh, possible for me to, uh, to be here when I'm a full-time teacher, uh, this is the Manitoba spring break, and uh, so hence I've got the entire week off, so my spring break comes just a little later than, uh, than the one here. Uh, as you can see by the uh, title of my presentation, it might uh, look a little different than, uh, and, than some other presentations that, uh, that you've attended. It's entitled, Cutting Through the Edge of Babel, How to Bring Common Sense Back to Assessment. And uh, just a little bit about, uh, about me. Uh, I'm uh, a full-time teacher. I also do uh, research and uh, policy work for the Frontier Center for, policy, uh, uh, for Public Policy. It's a think tank that's uh, headquartered in Winnipeg, but also has offices in both Saskatchewan and Alberta as well. Uh, I've been a teacher for the last 14 years. I currently teach high school in rural Manitoba in the southeastern part and uh, started out teaching grade five, all subjects, and uh, now I teach high school in the, in the social studies area. So I have experience both at the, uh, uh, at the uh, elementary or middle years level and also at the high school level. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about uh, th this issue of assessment. And uh, it's something that, uh, that has gotten into the news uh, more than a few times. I'm sure most of you are, are well aware of that. And I want to talk about uh, some of the challenges with assessment and how I think we can, uh, how we can improve it. And uh, I will make sure to leave enough time at the end of the presentation that there will be opportunities for, uh, for questions on a variety of topics. It doesn't have to be just on the topic of assessment. I'm certainly always open to, uh, uh, to dealing with a variety of issues. 
So let's get right into it. And uh, first of all, just to sort of set the background here a little bit, and uh, what I'm going to uh, talk about initially is something that most of you are probably familiar with. Assessment has changed over the last number of years. And these changes aren't necessarily bad. Uh, some of the uh, key areas in which uh, grading assessment and assessment has changed, well, one of them is that there's more emphasis on assessment as or assessment for learning and less emphasis on assessment uh, of learning. That's certainly a shift that we've seen in assessment, and uh, there's certainly plenty of research evidence, most notably John Hattie's work on the issue of feedback and providing timely feedback to students as quickly as possible. Uh, there is strong evidence for the value of, uh, uh, of, the, uh, of assessment, uh, particularly uh, when we talk about dividing formative and summative assessment. And this is something that uh, teachers have learned a lot about over the last number of years, that there's a difference between uh, giving a, an assignment or a test at the end of a unit and having feedback earlier on in the unit that you don't necessarily use for grades. And uh, certainly that's an area in which assessment has changed. You have a sharper divide uh, between uh, formative and summative assessment. Uh, a third shift that we've seen uh, is a closer correlation between uh, what, you're, what you're assessing and the curricular outcomes. In other words, there's this emphasis that when you're giving a mark, you should relate it as much as possible to what the actual curriculum states students should learn. That makes sense. Uh, I remember once when I was in uh, grade seven, my grade seven teacher had a, uh, had a test, and I believe it was science, and I don't remember much that was on it, but I was, I was one of those students that usually tried to do as well as they possibly could, and uh, I got, I think, 100%, but I didn't get the bonus question right, because he wanted a definition in the bonus section of the word gnarly. It had nothing whatsoever to do with the unit. I was frustrated. I went up to him and said, it's got nothing to do with what we've learned about here. And uh, of course, nowadays, we, we, we discourage that sort of thing. We try to make sure that the grades actually relate to uh, what students are supposed to be learning. And then, of course, uh, uh, the idea of separating behavior and academic achievement, reporting it separately to the greatest degree possible. Those are some of the ways in which assessment has changed over the last number of years. And uh, I'll go on the record and say that the general ideas behind these, uh, these principles are sensible. It makes sense to uh, divide formative and summative assessment, to correlate assessment with curricular outcomes, to, to as much as possible uh, report behavior and academic achievement separately. Uh, the, uh, the old saying, the devil is in the details though, and that's what I'm going to get to uh, very shortly. Uh, who is behind these assessment changes? Who are some of the uh, gurus of assessment as I refer to them? Well, you can see the list up there. People like Ken O'Connor, Damien Cooper, Ann Davies, Sandra Herbst, Thomas Gusky, Doug Greaves, Rick Stiggins. Uh, these are some of the names that we see most frequently uh, in regards to uh, the issue of assessment. So I started out by saying that uh, uh, there isn't too much problem, uh, too much of a problem with these basic ideas. So the question then becomes, why is there so much controversy? If separating, if having some of these principles makes sense, why do we have protests over changes to report cards? Or uh, one teacher who gains national celebrity because of a position he takes in regarding to his grading practices. There has been a lot of controversy lately in regards to assessment. This is, if you want to uh, alienate your broader community, one of the easiest way to do that is to start changing report cards and start changing grading practices, uh, and you will, uh, uh, you will get some controversy. Uh, just uh, a brief look at some, some, brief, some case studies and assessment controversy. Again, there's lots of others that I could have picked, but just some of the, uh, the most prominent examples where you see uh, some uh, controversy. Uh, I think we're all familiar with the uh, Ross Shepherd High School case uh, in Edmonton Public Schools. This is, of course, uh, where a high school teacher, Lyndon Dovell, uh, was suspended from the class but eventually fired uh, because he disagreed with his principal's no zeros edict. Uh, he chose to continue giving zeros, and uh, eventually he 
he was, uh, well, they followed all the standard discipline protocol and eventually he was fired because he disobeyed uh, a school board uh, directive. This issue caught uh, national attention. I mean, who, uh, who hasn't heard about this case, both within the education field and outside of it? Uh, so certainly, this is one of the flashpoints uh, for, uh, for assessment controversy, and I'm going to be talking a bit more about this, uh, some of the ideas behind, uh, behind no-zero uh, policies, in particular the type uh, that was in place in that uh, particular school and in some others. Uh, second uh, example of a school division where there's been some controversy, this one is very current, uh, Battle River School Division in Camero, based in Camrose, Alberta. This is a rural school division, uh, approximately 6,500 students and uh, 30 schools. Uh, like many rural schools, it is uh, uh, experiencing some declining enrollment and uh, some challenges from that. Uh, in the last couple of years, they've changed their grading system. They brought in what's called an alpha grading system, that's what they call it, that replaced percentages with four levels. So at beginning, level one was what used to be grades 0 to 49. At developing, level two was grades 50 to 66. Achieving, level three was 67 to 83. And then excelling, level four, uh, 84, to, uh, 84 to 100. This change was brought in from kindergarten all the way up to grade 12. And as a result, massive opposition among parents and students. Uh, there were actually a r a rallies that took place at the school board office, uh, and much of this was initiated particularly by high school students. They were just absolutely uh, furious that percentage grades were replaced with this nebulous grading model. They were frustrated that now, uh, you know, achieving, that could be anywhere from 67 to 83, that's a pretty broad range. And so students led the charge. Uh, there was a petition that eventually garnered 2,800 signatures demanding a change to their grading system. Uh, the school board, for some time, the trustees stood behind their new grading system. They, were, they said, we're, this is the way of the future, research supports this, all the standard talking points. Uh, what ended up happening? Just on March 20th, it was uh, at a board meeting, they reversed their policy at the high school level. A, a pretty big push, uh, pullback. Uh, they actually uh, removed the alpha, or they're going to remove the alpha grading system for grades 10 to 12. They're going to implement uh, percentages back again in the fall. They're going to keep the alpha grading for the time being at the lower grade levels. But it's a pretty significant reversal, and it caused them a lot of stress and uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of turmoil. Uh, another school division where there's been some controversy, uh, large urban school division, Calgary Public School Board, uh, about 103,000 students in this division. Uh, they have a pilot project underway. And in this pilot project, students in grades kindergarten to grade nine will be marked on a four-point scale, including uh, this uh, support required, emerging, evident, and exemplary. If there's one thing that's consistent about these new, uh, uh, these new four points is that you never find the same sets of words ever used twice. Every school board's got its own, you know, evident, emerging, excelling, achieving excellence, meaning. It's, it's like alphabet soup. And uh, this has generated some controversy in Calgary. There is the National Post uh, editorialized against it. There were some articles in the Calgary Herald that criticized it. Uh, one of them was mine, but uh, there, were, there were plenty of others that were critical as well. Uh, the, uh, if you go to their website, you can tell when a school board is feeling pressure from parents and the general public because if you go to the assessment part of their website, they've got a whole section on assessment and the new approach and trotting out the standard list of assessment experts, articles by pe people like Ken O'Connor and Cooper and all that. Uh, you can tell that they're, uh, that they're feeling some pressure there. Uh, at this point, they're still proceeding with their pilot project, but it'll be interesting to see how that, uh, how that develops. 
Uh, and then just one other fourth example in British Columbia, Maple Bridge and Pitt Meadow School District number 42. Uh, they have uh, 31 schools, 15,000 students. Uh, last year, the school district decided to move away from traditional grades for grades four to seven, uh, and so they replaced it again with a uh, four-level scale. Uh, there was some, uh, some controversy and there is still some debate. Uh, not as much debate and controversy in this school division, probably because this, the changes only went up to the grade seven level. So grades eight to 12, it's still a fairly, uh, traditional, uh, uh, still a fairly traditional grading system. So I'm, I could go on with examples, but uh, I think it makes the point that there are some issues here, there's some challenges. So when do parents begin to voice concerns about assessment? When do they start to, uh, uh, to get concerned? Well, here are some of the flashpoints that if you want to get parents concerned, do some of these things. Implement a no-zero policy uh, and make it public because most people uh, believe that students are not being held accountable under this system. And again, I'm going to talk more about it, uh, about uh, some of the debate on this, but that is certainly a good way to get some, uh, uh, get some controversy and debate. So if you're not getting enough people out to your public board meetings, announce a no-zero policy and you'll get them. Uh, the second thing that tends to get parents concerned, when you start removing percentage and or letter grades, particularly at the upper grade levels, uh, again, the higher in the grade level you go, the more controversy there tends to be. Parents like simple, clear, straightforward information. Uh, if they feel you're removing it, we've got a problem. Uh, difficult to understand report cards. This is something that frustrates parents. There's nothing more annoying than getting a report card with a bunch of M's and you're not really sure what that's supposed to mean. Okay, there's some meeting, meeting expectations, but are they doing well? Are they not doing as well? It doesn't really give the information that they're, uh, that they're wanting to get. So. Uh, where have the assessment gurus gone astray? Where, why do we have these problems? Well, I believe it's because of this. There are two assessment principles that are being implemented far too rigidly, taken to an absolute, and this is where you get the problem. First principle that's taken too rigidly, this idea of separation of behavior and academic achievement. Remember I said before that I agree with the general principle that you should generally move in this direction? I disagree with the idea that it must be an absolute. The assessment gurus think it should be an absolute, and this is where we run into the problems. And then closely connected with this, linking assessment only to curricular outcomes. Remember, I, again, I said before, I like the idea of as much as possible have the grade relate to what's specifically in the curriculum. However, if I teach a history class and I assign an essay and the student makes a lot of spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes, I'm going to dock marks for that. Even though it's not specifically in the list of history outcomes, spelling and grammar, it's an important enough skill that it should be universal, but technically that doesn't correlate with the curricular outcomes in that particular course. So again, it, it, these things are a matter of degree. Should behavior and academic achievement always be separate? Uh, most of the time, yes, but at certain points, no. For example, the idea of deducting marks for late work. If you don't have a late work penalty, some students will have less incentive to submit their assignments on time. I believe that it's appropriate for teachers to deduct marks for late work. I don't think that uh, uh, you should do it to excess. Uh, for example, I've never been one to say, if it's not in by this date, it's a zero no matter what. I think that is excessively rigid, but I think it's a problem, and I've experienced it, that if you don't have the option of deducting marks for late work, some students, not all, but some, 
figure out the system. They're smarter than we sometimes give them credit for. And if you tell them, if they know they can hand it in any time without a late mark penalty, you, you've just given an incentive to all of the uh, procrastinators to hand in the work as late as possible. This is a, something that teachers, uh, I, I know many teachers, and believe me, this is something that, uh, that has been an issue. Uh, what about the issue of what if a student plagiarizes an assignment? Should you be able to dock marks or give them a zero if it's a particularly egregious case? I think you should. Plagiarism is pretty serious. You shouldn't uh, copy someone else's work and misrepresent it as your own. But if you look at what the assessment gurus say, they say no. You, the consequence should be having the student redo the assignment, but you shouldn't deduct marks for the plagiarism. I think that's wrong. Yes, plagiarism is a behavior, but it's a behavior that has an awfully close connection with your academic achievement. If you are a regular plagiarist, that's going to hurt your academics, so maybe that should be reflected in, uh, in your mark. Uh, also, students who complete their assignments on time are more likely to learn the out course outcomes than those who do not. Again, some of these behaviors around the issues of punctuality and ethics, these are important enough behaviors that if students aren't doing these things, uh, we're going, they're not going to learn as well as students who do. So, what about uh, uh, a specific case study here, the issue of no zero policies? Now, fortunately, a lot of school boards uh, and provincial governments have moved away from these, at least officially. Uh, you, you still find many in the informal level where you make it almost impossible for the teacher to give a zero because they have to do a list of five things first before they can. But this is certainly something that has been implemented in different parts of the country in varying degrees. What are some of the standard arguments for no zero policies? And again, I summarize these from the writings of people like Ken O'Connor, Damian Cooper, uh, and such. I mean, they, these are the arguments that, uh, that they make. Classic one, incomplete assignments are a behavioral issue rather than an academic issue. So again, that's the argument that's made. Uh, they say the consequence for not doing the work should be making the student do the work. So don't give a zero, make them do the assignments. Zeros are the easy way out for students. If you give a zero, it's, it's easy for them to say, I'm just going to take a zero, don't, uh, don't make me do the assignments. Zeros have a disproportionately negative effect on students' grades. This is another one where, uh, that is made that uh, zero makes it impossible for a student to catch up, so we shouldn't give them. And then, of course, the classic, research supports no zero policies. If you're ever stuck in terms of defending something, just say research supports it, and then, uh, and then you've got it. Uh, so do these arguments hold weight? No, they don't. Uh, no zero policies are unsupported by the evidence, and they often fail when implemented in a school setting. So here's some of the reasons why no zero policies and the ideas behind them are so problematic. First of all, research does not actually support no zero policies. Uh, when I wrote a research report on this two years ago, um, what I did was I looked up uh, some of the standard arguments, some of the of, of people who support no zero policies. There's plenty of them out there. And what you do is you look for where they're making a claim, and then they'll cite a source. So read the source, and then go trace that back. It's fun. And you can actually learn a lot about where someone's evidence, someone's evidence comes from just by tracing their sources. So here's the claim from Ken O'Connor in How to Grade for Learning. Receiving a mark of zero causes a student to withdraw from learning. That's a pretty direct claim. Student gets a zero, he or she is going to withdraw from learning. What's the source he cites to back this up? Well, he cites Thomas Gusky, an article entitled Grading Practices That Work Against Standards and How to Fix Them in the NAWSP Bulletin back in 2000. That's the source. So let's trace that back. In his article, Thomas Gusky does make the claim that low grades cause students to withdraw from learning, but he cites one source. So we now have to do some detective work. What's the source he cites? 
Deborah Selby and Sharon Murphy, graded or degraded perceptions of letter grading for mainstreamed learning disabled students from the British Columbia Journal of Special Education, 1992. Remember, the claim that zeros cause students to withdraw from learning is ultimately founded on this article when you trace it back. Well, what does this article do? Well, it's, it reports on a study of six learning disabled students in a mainstreamed classroom. That's the article. It's a study of six students in a mainstream classroom. No zero advocates regularly cite Thomas Gusky for their claim uh, that zeros, uh, that, uh, that zeros uh, and or low grades make students withdraw from learning. Thomas Gusky cites only the Selby and Murphy study to back up this claim. He uses this article again and again. Uh, you can, uh, every time I find one of Gusky's articles where he's making this claim, watch for the Selby and Murphy quote. Now you know where that came from. So thus, on this point, the empirical evidence does not back up this key claim made by no zero advocates. What's another claim that they make? The claim is this. This is by Thomas Gusky again. A zero is seldom an accurate reflection of what a student has learned or is able to do. An article he wrote uh, for Principal Leadership called Zero Alternatives. Uh, it was on the Edmonton School Board's website for a while. It was one of their key no zero articles defending it. What's the source he cites for that particular claim? Well, he cites a presentation by Barry Rabeck uh, titled Exploding Myths, Exploring Truths, etc., etc. It's a paper he presented back in 1993. So I looked up the paper. What, is he, what does Rayback uh, use? His paper does describe the use of zeros as a questionable grading practice, but nowhere does Rayback cite any research evidence to support that particular position. Thus, Gusky's key argument against zeros is based on one English teacher's opinion-based presentation at a conference almost 20 years ago. Uh, you might be interested to know, by the way, that uh, considering how often Barry Rabeck is quoted, he did write a more recent book called The Teacher's Grade Book back in 2002. You know, one of the things he says in it, he says, we, shouldn't, we can't absolutely separate behavior from academic achievement. Sort of an irony that the guy who gets cited again and again in support of this argument actually doesn't believe in one of their key things. So Gusky repeats the same claim about zeros in several of his books. He always cites the same presentation by, uh, by Rabeck. Second point, zeros do not have a disproportionately, neg ne disproportionately negative impact on grades. What's the claim? Well, here we have Douglas Reeves. He says, quote, to insist on the use of zero on a 100-point scale is to assert that work that is not turned in deserves a penalty that is many times more severe than that assessed for work that is done wretchedly and is worth the deed. In other words, he's saying, you give a student a zero, it's just going to have a disproportionately negative impact on grades. Ken O'Connor makes the same argument many times. What's the reality? Zeros don't impact grades disproportionately when assignments and tests are graded using a percentage scale. All of O'Connor's uh, uh, examples tend to be where they, he'll say that a, that a D is anywhere from uh, a D is a 60% and below 60% is a fail. And so he says a zero, you're saying there's that huge range there. But with normal percents at a 100-point scale, you actually have an equal number of percentage levels of performance ranges above 50 as there are below the 50. And so, for example, a student who received a mark of 48 did better than the one who received 15. Well, both are still better than a zero. They're all still failing marks, but some failing marks are worse than others. And I don't think it's an unreasonable statement to make that not handing in anything 
is worse than handing in something and they got a quarter of the questions right, or they got a quarter of it. Uh, getting 25% is better than getting 0%, and if we're worried about zeros disproportionately impacting marks, there's a simple solution to that problem. It's called handing in the assignment, and then it's not affecting the mark anymore. Uh, third argument uh, that I would like to make on no zeros. A zero is an appropriate consequence for a student who refuses to do the work. Now, not all students refuse to do work. To some, I know there's other issues. But here's the claim, and this is by Doug Reeves again. The price of freedom is proficiency, and students are motivated, not by threats of failure, but by the opportunity to earn greater freedom and discretion by completing work accurately and on time. So the argument he makes is that uh, if we, if a student doesn't do the work, you keep him in. You give him a detention, keep him in at lunch, keep him in after school. That's a, uh, uh, that's a great uh, idea, except reality. Sometimes students choose not to complete their assignments, even when required to attend mandatory detentions. You know, there's, there's a pattern here, and most teachers will be familiar with this. If a student hasn't submitted work in in one course at the high school level, there's a good chance they haven't submitted work in other courses. And that accumulates. So you can give all the one-hour detentions in the world. Uh, you're not going to have enough time if they're not putting in the effort. You're not going to have enough time to actually make them do the work. What are you going to do uh, when, if they ultimately choose not to hand it in? For those students, a zero is appropriate. Now, that's not all students, and it's not most. Most students do the work. And I agree, by the way. I'll, uh, I'll preempt one of the uh, uh, concerns that might be raised at this point. But, well, what if the teacher is giving a lousy assignment? Well, then they should design a better assignment. I agree. Sometimes teachers give poor assignments, and students aren't motivated. But the solution, then, is not to say that you can't get a zero. The solution, then, is to uh, try to redesign the assignment in advance. So that way, it works for everyone. Uh, another argument I'm going to make here is that no zero policies unreasonably restrict the professional discretion of teachers. And here's the claim by Thomas Gusky. If guided by reflections on the true purpose of grading, it is likely that teachers at all levels will abandon the use of zeros completely. In other words, all the teachers use zeros, they just haven't been informed yet. They haven't been encountered all the evidence. Once they read our brilliant stuff, uh, they're going to be convinced uh, of the wisdom of no zero policies. All teachers except me, I guess, uh, and a whole bunch of others that, uh, that share my concerns. Reality, most teachers who give zeros generally do so only as a last resort. There aren't many teachers. In fact, I don't know of any. They're just waiting to give a zero. Like they just can't wait for the opportunity. No one does that. No one wants to do that. Considering the emphasis that assessment gurus usually place on the professional discretion of teachers, it's ironic these same gurus want to make a teacher's, want to remove a teacher's discretion when it comes to zeros. It's funny because you read their articles, their books, and they're all big on use your professional judgment, use your judgment, use your judgment. Teachers need to be, but on this issue, all of a sudden, uh, teacher's judgment doesn't matter. Don't give zeros uh, because our philosophy uh, must reign paramount. Um, so I think it unreasonably restricts the professional discretion of teachers. Uh, fifth argument I'm going to make, no zero policies are a surefire way to alienate the broader community. So not only are they not supported uh, by the evidence, you're going to get running into problems. So here's the claim. Here's uh, Damian Cooper. Parents, communities, and post-secondary institutions need to be educated about the changing nature of reporting on learning. The obvious, what this means is parent, we just need to tell parents enough. We just need to keep informing them about the new assessment, and eventually they're going to buy in. Uh, the reality is this. As we recently observed in Edmonton, no amount of explanation and education can overcome the fact 
that an overwhelming majority of the public strongly opposes no-zero policies. The controversy over no-zero policies threatens to overshadow many of the positive aspects of new assessment practices. You'll remember before I said there's some good things in new assessment practices. Do you think in Edmonton in the last couple of years that the public has been talking about, oh, separating formative and summative assessment? Uh, no, they, they've been debating no-zero policies. Again, you had a situation where a school took something to an extreme, implemented it, refused to back down until, until eventually uh, the, uh, the board got involved. And so, uh, what we find is uh, something like this. Apparently, no zero doesn't extend to public opinion polls. And uh, just one of uh, a number of cartoons indicating what, uh, what the public tends to think about, uh, about no zero policies. Now, let me uh, broaden a little bit because that's uh, uh, sort of the no zero issue. But what about this issue of uh, percentages? Should we replace percentages by performance scales? This is a big issue. You know, should we take the percentage off the report card and replace it with these checklists of outcomes and have the M and the U and the D or whatever other letters uh, the school board happens to come up with? Here's the claim made by Ken O'Connor, and he says this. He says, the basic problem with the percentage system is that it has too many levels, 101. This implies a precision that simply does not exist because no one can describe the difference between 71 and 73%. Well, yeah, in some cases, you, you can't describe the difference. Um, it, it, I remember when I gave math tests at the grade 5 level, the difference between a 71 and 73 is pretty straightforward. The person who got 73 probably got one more question right than the one with 71. So it actually isn't that hard to, uh, uh, to tell the difference here. And I can definitely tell you that as a general rule of thumb, uh, the, the, the bigger the, the difference between those, the, uh, the more uh, it, it's, it's pretty simple to uh, measure. So why do I defend percentages in light of the fact that I'm going against what the assessment gurus have to see? Well, there's some pretty simple reasons why well, I think that uh, percentages are, uh, uh, are a good thing. For example, percentages are easily understood by parents and students. It's, I don't think we can overstate the importance of communication, of making something easy for people to understand. There are very few people in society that don't understand how a percent works. Uh, in terms of the basic concept, yeah, I know some people will, will, will mix it up and such, but the basic idea of 75% or 60%, most people know what that is. I know that uh, uh, in Manitoba, there's a, uh, the grade 9 levels, there's a transitional math course that has been offered to students who have had difficulties with math. And what that course does, at least when they brought it in, was they decided to start with something that everyone could understand and then build from there. And that basic thing was percent. They started with that because all they knew that all the kids understood the basic idea of percent and it was from there that they took students into things like fractions and, and, and a whole series of other things. So uh, we, can't, we can't overstate how, how easy it is for people to understand. You know, parents get a report card and they want to see how's my kid doing. Well, percent is a pretty simple way uh, to do that. Uh, percentages make it possible to distinguish between various levels of excellence. Uh, for example, 98 is better than 89, uh, and this gives students a target for improvement. Uh, if, I have, uh, if we had the alpha grading system that Battle River uh, has been implementing, those two students would get the same mark. The student with 98 and 89 would get the same mark. But I know from experience, and again, there's always exceptions. There's, there's always exceptions to prove the rule. But, you will have, but the vast majority of cases, if you have two students in, a, let's say, a chemistry course, one's got 98, the other's got 89, more often than not, the student with 98 probably understands a little more of the chemistry than the student with 89. Yes, there's exceptions, 
but generally speaking, that's what you're going to see. And uh, so again, it's uh, pretty straight, uh, pretty straightforward there. And you can, it gives you targets that you can move towards. So now when the report card comes home and we got an 87, well, you we should try to push it up to a 90. Kids get that. Parents get that. Parents like that. Kids like that. Uh, hence why Battle River, uh, there was so much controversy there because both parents and, and students wanted those, uh, those simple targets. Uh, and a simple, another thing is that teachers can use their professional discretion to ensure the percentage grades fairly reflect student achievement. I believe in teacher professional discretion. I know, yes, there's going to be times where you make it through a unit and you realize that, oh, I could have assessed this thing better or I didn't teach this as well here. And so, yes, you'll, you might make adjustments. You might ch change the weighting. You might say, you know, after giving this some thought and seeing where the students are at, uh, it's actually more appropriate to weight something more heavily than I'd originally intended. That's fine. Teachers can use professional discretion. And uh, again, I know there's differences of opinion among teachers on the issue of percent, but if you have percents, it's not that hard for, uh, for teachers to, uh, uh, to work with them. Again, particularly when you go to the, uh, the higher grade levels. So when do percentages work particularly well? Like when are these things particularly good? Well, they're really good for calculating the overall percentage of questions answered correctly on a unit test. They're great for that. So if I'm handing back a test to students, and I, let's say the test is out of 40, and then uh, I, could, I could put it's 34 out of 40, or I could change it into a percent. Uh, or I could tell them to change it, which many of them will do automatically, because the percent is that, that easy reference point. So let's say there is 27 questions in one test, 50 questions in another test. You convert them both into percent, you have an immediate, easy point of reference how did I do in terms of answering these particular questions? So when you're dealing with a unit test, percentages are, uh, are remarkably simple and straightforward. Percentages can also be quite useful when you're grading longer assignments and reports, certainly the ones that are more elaborate. Uh, and again, you can, uh, uh, you, have your, you can have your checklist of, okay, I'm going to mark these five things in your essay, uh, and I'm going to have a, you can even have your scale, by the way, of one to four for these different categories. And then you add them up and put it as a percent, and then the student has a, a pretty straightforward idea in terms of overall, where are they at? And then if they want more information, then you take a look at the individual ratings. But the, the wrong approach, I think, is to get rid of the percent and just have uh, just the outcomes, because I think then, uh, and the one to four. Uh, they're also really good when communicating information about academic achievement to students and their parents. Uh, and again, I've, been, I've mentioned this point uh, a couple of times already, but again, can't uh, emphasize enough the important of, uh, importance of good uh, communication. So what are some key recommendations? Kind of summing up some of these ideas, because I want to make sure that I leave time for some questions and discussion, because I realize that uh, I'm, I've likely generated some. Uh, What's one recommendation I'd make? Well, very simply, be less rigid when expecting teachers to separate behavior from academic achievement and grades. Don't make it an absolute. It doesn't have to be. There's nothing wrong with saying that uh, as a principle, as, a, as, a, as our rule of thumb, we want to separate behavior from academic, academic achievement. So for example, uh, if you have, let's say, uh, a teacher who is given an assignment, uh, I don't think it's appropriate, even though some teachers have done this in the past, to say, if you talk again, I'm taking one mark off your, your, your assignment. Oh, you talked again, I'm taking a second mark off. That's not a good way to grade because that's, it's a pretty direct in, in, intrusion of the, of the behavior there. But when we're talking about deducting marks for late work, talk about dealing with plagiarism. We're talking about what do we do when assignments don't come in, even though we followed all the steps of getting the assignments to come in. Let's not hamstring ourselves 
uh, by saying that you can never allow behavior to impact acad the academic achievement, because it already does. It, it, it behave if, if a student doesn't hand work in and doesn't uh, uh, and is always late, there's a pretty good chance. I mean, I'll tell you this: when I get assignments in, like if I give assign an essay or a poster project or whatever, vast majority of the time. You know what the uh, the worst assignment quality is? Usually the ones that come in the latest, generally speaking. Not always, but as a rule of thumb, if they come in two or three weeks late, that's not usually my best stuff. Like that's not usually, oh, I'm going to use this as an example next time. Normally this is the okay, I did it because I had to do it. Um, if it comes in on time, those are usually the ones that are done uh, with the best quality. It's, it's actually not hard to understand why. The further removed you are from the deadline, the further you removed you are from when the instruction actually took place, and the less likely you are to remember what it is you're actually supposed to be working on. Uh, second recommendation, this one's pretty simple. Stay away from formal or informal no-zero policies. Don't go there. Uh, it, 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 doesn't, uh, it doesn't win you any points with the general public. You will have pretty close to zero support among the general public. Um, when they did a, and I know it's not scientific, but when the Edmonton Journal did a survey, uh, one of those online surveys, yeah, I know it's not scientific, but they got over 12,000 responses. They usually get like three, 400, 500 responses, but they got 12,000 responses on the no zero issue. It was 97% against. Like this is one of those issues that you're not gonna win this one in terms of if you have a no zero policy. And don't make them informal either. Don't make the rules so strict for teachers that they really can't give a zero because there's like five things they have to do before and you know they really can't do those things. Um, it's, again, this is where t professional discretion comes in. If you have a student that hasn't handed work in and, is, and is, you, you've determined that they can do it, but they're just choosing not to do it, sometimes a zero is appropriate. Not always. I, I don't give a lot of them. I'll be perfectly honest. I, I don't really like giving zeros. It doesn't, uh, I really don't. Uh, use per uh, another recommendation, as might get some discussion, is, well, I think we should use percentage grades in the report cards. Uh, now, again, the grade level, we can have some debate over. I would personally recommend it for, for grades 5 to 12. I, I don't have any problem with it at younger grade levels as well, but I also recognize that uh, the case is weaker at, those, uh, at the younger levels than at the older levels. But certainly, the, when you're getting up to the point where you have separated subjects, uh, more academic content, particularly at high school, but even at the middle years level, uh, I think it's appropriate to have percentage grades. Now, a second best option is using letter grades, A plus, A, A minus, B plus. I, I'm okay with those two. Uh, I like percent a little more because there's a little more you can do with them in terms of uh, showing some difference uh, between different levels. But again, uh, use something that parents can easily understand. And percentage grades, uh, uh, I, I don't know of any cases yet where a school division's gotten into massive controversy and trouble because they put percents on report cards. I don't know of any cases, but uh, I certainly know of plenty where it's gone the other way. Uh, and then uh, another key recommendation, allow teachers to use their professional discretion when determining grades. Here I'm actually going to echo what the assessment gurus say, except I'm actually meaning it in the fuller sense to include some of these other issues. Let teachers have some discretion. Teachers went to university for, in most cases, four, five, six years. Um, I, I, they should know how to mark assignments. Uh, and uh, they should know, uh, be able to determine what's, how should I deal with late work, what's the appropriate way to deal with work that doesn't come in. Give them support, give them advice, work with them, uh, but allow some professional discretion. And uh, because I think that that's, uh, uh, that's, that goes a long way to, uh, uh, to addressing some of this. And uh, again, not a lot of teachers uh, are comfortable necessarily speaking out publicly on this, but uh, I've certainly heard from, uh, from many uh, that, uh, that like percents and like having some uh, professional discretion. Uh, so that's my formal part of the presentation. I want to thank you for your attention. I'm going to get to some questions and comments in just a bit. I've left uh, some time at the end here, so that was uh, my intention. Uh, I'll just mention as well that uh, 
for more information, uh, I have my uh, contact information up here, my email address, phone number. I have a personal website, michaelswagster.com, where you can find lots, lots more stuff. Um, there's also the book I co-authored, What's Wrong With Our Schools. If you go to my website, it has information on it there. Uh, and uh, also on each of the tables, I put some of my business cards, which, which has my email address and website on that as well. So feel free to take those and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and to get more information. So I want to thank you for listening to my formal part of the presentation. And I'll certainly uh, open it up to, uh, uh, to comments and questions. And by the way, I'm okay with, with disagreement and debate. That, uh, that doesn't bother me at all. So uh, I'm certainly open to that. Questions? Thank you very much. Thank you.